All right, so we are in Matthew chapter 23. In Matthew chapter 5, oh, by the way, you'll need to have your Bibles open because I'm planning on doing this a little differently this morning than normal. I'm more or less going to do a running commentary as I read through the chapter. We're not going to be, Matthew 5 isn't obviously Matthew 23, but I'm starting there. Matthew 5 verse 20, Jesus speaking says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 23 is kind of like a sequel or something to that statement because Matthew chapter 23 unpacks for us the kind of righteousness that we need to avoid in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. The kind of righteousness that we need to avoid in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. And before we get carefully into the text, we're not actually ever going to get carefully into the text this morning. We're moving far too quickly. But um, before we get into Matthew chapter 23, I want to encourage you as you read your Bible. I have been hugely blessed by listening to Josh preach in the last, well, for a long time, but um, particularly from Matthew 21, the triumphal entry until now. Because as he has preached and mentioned things, they have triggered things for me. And slowly, um, and I would say too slowly, (laughs) I'm a little dull sometimes, I started to pick up on some of the little triggers that Matthew gives us or the little words that Matthew says that, that fill out the context and enable us to imagine what's actually going on here. And the more I imagine what's actually going on here, the more it gave me goosebumps. And so... I'm hoping that I can maybe in a little way help you have a few goosebumps as you hear and see what Jesus did. So pay attention to um, when it says, and he said to the crowds and his disciples, and he went off by himself or he found some Pharisees who were by themselves and he said to them, um, and the children were shouting. Um, Those are all keys to kind of picturing what's happening here. So very quickly, I'm going to re, in, in short form, two days in the life of Jesus um, with all those little statements, the crowds, the disciples, Jesus, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees. So we have the triumphal entry, and, and Matthew tells us most of the crowds... Most of the crowd laid their cloaks on the ground and were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Most of the time, we would read that without reading the word most. But most means that there were some who were bystanders. That there were a few that weren't, didn't recognize the son of David and who were along listening or paying attention, curious, whatever, all kinds of human emotions. Most of the crowd laid their cloaks and were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they come down into the city, and the city is set in an uproar because there's this crazy thing happening that there's a man riding on a donkey and people putting their coats on. This doesn't happen every day. In fact, most 
of these people, in fact, probably all of these people, would never have seen this before. Like, this doesn't happen. And they're shouting, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the city is in an uproar, and they're asking each other, who is this? And then the crowds, not exactly the same crowds, say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. Now, the ones who are shouting Hosanna have a level of recognition that Jesus is the Christ, and the ones who are saying the prophet, they're not there yet. They, they are recognizing that this man is special, that he's amazing, that he's unusual, but they're not saying son of David. They're not saying Hosanna. He's a, he's a prophet from Nazareth. Uh, and then they go into the temple and... The children are continuing to shout, Hosanna to the son of David in the temple. And Jesus has knocked over the tables again. He did it early in his ministry and has driven out the money changers and he's doing miracles and the Pharisees and the scribes are indignant. Do you not hear what these children are saying? In essence, shut them up for crying out loud. They ought not to be saying this. And then Jesus, of course, Anyways, I'm going to give in to the temptation of telling you too much because then it's going to take too long. Uh, I'm on a new thing here where I'm trying to be disciplined. You know, 64 years old, trying to be disciplined. Look at my son-in-law laughing right there. He doesn't hold out much hope. Uh, anyways, the Pharisees are indignant. And uh, that's the end of day. One, Jesus says, if I get them to be quiet, the rocks are going to cry out. Um, and he goes, leaves the temple, goes to Bethany, has a sleep, comes back the next morning, curses the fig tree on the way back into the temple, spends the day in the temple telling parables. And somewhere in the daytime, the Pharisees, it dawns on him that they're actually getting mocked, that Jesus is speaking these parables against them. And then they do a back and forth. And, and finally, the end of chapter 22, the Pharisees have gathered by themselves and they're trying to figure out what to do. Jesus has already heard from them as they tried to stump him with their questions. And now he asks them one, in essence, saying, how can David call his son, not yet born, Lord? How can David, a thousand years ago, call his son, who is not going to be born for however many years that is. It would be a thousand, but I'm just questioning whether I got that right. Uh, <laughs> how can he call him Lord? And they stop asking him questions, and that's the setup for Matthew chapter 23. Now, Josh already pointed out that Jesus isn't being nice. And as a matter of fact, in our culture, if Jesus did what he did, I think probably in their culture too, um, it would be like totally socially unacceptable. It would be like, no, you can't do this. It would be like me having Prime Minister Trudeau sitting front and center and then talking to you about how awful he is. That's what it would be like. That's what Jesus did. So let's go. Matthew chapter 23 we have, it breaks down into kind of three parts. The first, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees to the crowds. 
and the Pharisees are standing there listening. Okay? Jesus is talking about the Pharisees to the crowds, and the Pharisees and the scribes are standing there listening. The next section, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees about the Pharisees, and the crowds are standing there listening. A little bit like what sometimes happens at our supper table where one of our children needs to be corrected, and we are correcting that child while the rest of the children listen and learn by default that they shouldn't ought to do what that child did. That kind of thing going on. Um, and then the third section, Jesus speaks to Jerusalem and pulls back at, and speaks from the perspective of centuries of time. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Um, and then he leaves the temple and goes to the Mount of Olives to spend time with his disciples in preparation for his crucifixion. So that's the context. Now, really fast. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes, this is now 23 verse 1, and keep your Bibles open and your finger in it because you're going to need to follow with this. I, I actually considered trying to do this with PowerPoint and couldn't figure out how. And then Josh told me this morning that I couldn't anyways because they have to do something special for live stream. So I was going to start with an apology and then Josh said I couldn't so I thought I got off the hook and now I apologize anyways. But anyways... Uh, then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. So first off, Luke 10, 27, Jesus is in action again with the scribes and the Pharisees. And they say, what must we do to be saved? And Jesus say, what do you think? And they, one of them says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. So the Pharisees are capable of getting it bang on. And keep in mind also that they are not in our context. How many of you have a Bible this morning? How many of you heard about the invention of the printing press? All right, that's, we live on this side of the printing press. Back then, almost nobody had a Bible. And on top of that, they weren't all literate, as we are all literate. That's why they call people scribes, because the scribe's job was to record or recopy the Scriptures so that they were, in essence, the printing press, except that that meant since they did that day in and day out, they were also experts in the law. And the law was also the the civil law, so that they had their national politics and their religious politics all wrapped in one, and the scribes were the authorities on that because they knew the Bible from cover to cover. Um, but if you were an average Israelite, how would you get to know the Bible? If you said, I'm not going to listen to the scribes and the Pharisees, guess what? you're not going to listen to the Bible because there's no access for the Bible for you apart from listening to them. So it's important when Jesus says, 
The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so observe whatever they tell you. It's because there's a respect for the Word of God that makes it so you listen, because they're preaching and teaching and telling you the Word of God. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So they are all about appearances. They are all about being honored by other people. They are all about living to impress and to maintain their place as the pinnacle of society. And that's how, that's how they were viewed. The average layperson lived in, in awe of the scribes and the Pharisees because they were the religious leaders. And I lost my place and I told you not to. Thank you. You can have that role. Just keep me. Uh, thank you very much, Shane. Um, but you are not to be called rabbi for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Now, Jesus is not suggesting that it is somehow immoral for us to say daddy or dad to our fathers. And he's not suggesting that if you listen to Josh as a teacher, that's a big problem. <laughs> it's not a big problem. But the point is that when Josh teaches or when I teach or when anybody else teaches, we are to be teaching the Bible. And the point of you listening to us is not that you get the words that we say. That's really not very relevant or important or significant. But that you listen to us as we bring you to the Scriptures and we bring the Scriptures to you. Our place is only to unpack the Word of God. Other than that, we have no esteem or significance um, that puts us above any of you. Um, and that, that's with rabbi. That's, so the, the Pharisees were all about that. And you know, in our megachurch world, and I'm not trying to, I have, I'm, I have my own megachurch favorites, you know, certainly wouldn't be saying anything against Chuck Swindoll here at this moment, or Tim Keller, or John Piper. And yet there's, there is a culture in church where we, we lift up a man and then we build a ministry around that man. And that's horrid. And that's ungodly, and that needs to be treated as awful. So... Make sure that you are not like the Pharisees, for they preach but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with a finger. You know, in my personal experience of legalists, and by the way, that's what this chapter is about. Pharisees are legalists. Scribes and Pharisees are legalists. They're all about law and making sure that we are obeying the law. And as I think back over my 40, 50, 
I can't think back of 60 years of history because I don't remember the first 10. But anyways, um, especially lately, as I've become more and more discerning, I, I meet up with people who are legalists, and, and they kind of bug me, or I don't like them very much. And, and it's all, you can't do this, and you can't do that, and you can't do something else, and don't, and no. And, and then I watch them treat another person in a way that is obviously horrendous to me. And they appear to be completely unaware. And, and, and I have, earlier in my life, I did not understand this verse. How can, it, how can Jesus say, they are not willing to move them with their finger when the Pharisees are famous for obeying the law? When they spend hours of time carefully dissecting to make sure that they've got it right. When I can read in Hebrew the Mishnah, which is all about the Pharisees and the scribes going, well, I think that it doesn't mean this and it does mean that. And if we do this, we're okay. And if we do that, we're not okay. And you already talked about the schools of Shammai and Hillel related to divorce. They're, they're motivated by a desire to be obedient to the law, so they spend hours trying to figure out what the law teaches so that they can obey it. And Jesus says, they tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. He's making a statement that the kind of righteousness that the Pharisees passionately pursue, and believe me, legalists passionately pursue righteousness. But it's a righteousness that will fail to get them into the kingdom of heaven and needs to be avoided at all costs. Otherwise, you will find yourself with the Pharisees with a kind of righteousness. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So the Pharisees and the scribes and all the legalists in their tribe are going to stand at the judgment of Jesus Christ, deeply disappointed because they gave their life to a righteousness that turned out to be bogus. And you don't want that righteousness. So be careful when your passion is for rules and regulations and making sure that you dot your I's and cross your T's and do it better than the next person. And be careful when you start to feel pretty good about how good you are. And when you start to think of yourself as just, you've got it. Jesus says, he says to you, while the Pharisees are listening, don't touch it. Avoid it at all costs. They're ugly. Awful. Next. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. We have seven of them. For reasons that I do not know, and I did not spend the time trying to figure out, we have seven woes, and they all start with, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, except for one. The third one, which starts with, woe to you, blind guides. So the first one, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, for you neither enter yourselves nor allow those who would enter to go in. What does he mean? Well, paraphrased, you say, you can't go into the kingdom of heaven unless you become like us even though you're unaware that you are also not getting in. Because if they become like you, they are guaranteed not to get in, and yet that's what you set up. 
So you set up a heavy burden and you say, if you want to become, enter into the kingdom of heaven, you need to do this and this and this and this and this. It becomes all about what you perform or how you perform. And then they say, if you perform as well as us, you're going to get in. Well, they're lying. And legalists today are lying too. Well, they're not lying maybe because technically a liar means that you have to intend to deceive. They're just wrong. Next. Matthew 23, verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. Now just imagine Jesus saying that to their face in the presence of the crowds and the children who had been singing Hosanna, son of David, and the blind and the lame who he just healed yesterday. Woe to you! Scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single prostitute, and when he becomes a prostitute, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. What? Proselyte, what did I say? What did I say? Oh, my. You know, I was having a phone conversation with a guy who buys beef from me in Toronto yesterday, and I was talking about beef, and right in the middle I said chicken soup. Because one of my kids crossed the pass with chicken soup and I hadn't eaten since breakfast time, and I wanted anyways. Like, you better listen to me well because it won't be long and I won't make any sense at all. Um, proselyte, by the way, is a convert. I, I actually meant to say that so that anybody who maybe didn't know what a proselyte was. So they travel over land and sea. They work really hard to convert others to their Pharisaic legalistic perspective. And when they finally get them and they praise, they're just delighted. Look, we've got somebody else in our tribe. They make him as Jesus, as a worse son of hell than they are. Now they are doomed. They would have been better off away from legalism and not pursuing righteousness than to seek the righteousness that is by works. 23, verse 16 to 22. Woe to you blind guides who say, this is a long woe, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools! Let that sink in that this is how Jesus talks to people. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by the altar swears by it and by everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. In your efforts, woe to you, because in your efforts to make the law manageable, you make it silly. That was my best effort to try to put all of that into one sentence. Woe to you, because in your efforts to make the law manageable, you make it silly. What I actually think is going on here is that the Pharisees want 
a way to be able to make an oath and get off the hook without keeping it. So if you swear by the temple that you're going to pay somebody so-and-so, and then you don't pay that somebody so-and-so, you say, well, I only swore by the temple. That doesn't count. And if you swear by the, what is it? Uh, by the altar. Do I got that right? Swears by it and by everything on it. For which is greater, the gift? Yeah. Anyways, you get the idea. That the, that the Pharisees and the scribes wanted to make sure that they were living according to the letter and staying on the right side of the law. Therefore, they needed to be able to have a way to make oaths without being held accountable to keep their oaths. So they divided these things all up. So as long as you don't say the gold of the temple, you don't have to keep your oath. That's what I think. And that's just that, what that is. That's what I think. I'll try to say, thus says the Lord when I'm sure. And that's what I think when I don't know for sure. Uh, <laughs> Anyways, I think that's what's happening here. In your efforts to make the law manageable, you make it silly. Matthew 23, verse 23 and 24. Woe, that's number four. Uh, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you tithe mint and dill and cumin. No, those would have been spices or whatever you call the herbs that they grew. And have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides, straining out a gnat and swallowing a camel. You major on minors. Woe to you because you major on minors and ignore majors. Now, there's a surprise embedded in this woe. If I had written this, or if I had said it, I would have just said, don't worry about the small stuff. Don't sweat the small stuff and pay attention to justice and faithfulness and mercy. That's not what Jesus says. He says, pay attention to mint and cumin and dill and tithe and those little things. But don't let those little things give you the impression that you've got it while you're ignoring the orphan and the widow and the poor that are in your assembly and the needy around you while you are living in a way that is meant to exalt yourself while others are debased. Live first for, major, for the majors of justice and faithfulness and mercy, but also make sure that you're, there is no piece of your life that doesn't belong to Jesus. Now, I don't know why. I was going to say, from the way you brush your teeth, which I almost never do, which is a big problem. So, but from the way you brush your teeth to uh, every little thing can be an expression of obedience. So when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees about a righteousness that will fail to get them into the kingdom of heaven, he is not saying that we need to be less concerned with being righteous. That it has to come from a different place, that it's internal from our hearts by the Spirit as opposed to external from rules. In the power of the flesh. 23 verse 25 to 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may also be clean. The odd time our dishwasher does this. 
You got to pull out a soup bowl out of the cupboard, and lo and behold, on the outside, it's perfect, glistening white. And, and oh, what in the world? The dishwasher missed this one. Jesus is describing the Pharisees as that all the time. Like a dishwasher that you open, and every, every glass and thing glistens until you look on the inside, and then it's all full of crud and grossness. You clean up for show, but not for real. Your cleanness or your cleanliness is fake. And as long as you keep a distance, you can look really good. But when you get up close, it's not lovely at all. Woe number six, Matthew 23, verse 27 to 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. We have made death palatable. But I remember long conversations that I thoroughly enjoyed with Lynn's granddad. And he would talk to me about the days when he was a young boy. He's passed away now for, I don't know how long, 10 or 15 years. Um, and, and when somebody died in August, in the heat of the day, in a Mennonite community, um, they, would, they would have that person laid out on the kitchen table in, in the house. And they would quickly send word out that we need to have a funeral instantly. And then when it took too long, they would pour, I think, formaldehyde on the, on the corpse to try to keep it from rotting too quickly so that everybody could get there so they could get it buried before it stank too bad. Jesus is telling them on the, you guys, whitewashed tombstones. But Below the tombstone. Gross. That's what you are. You have a external righteousness. But internally, you are full of dead men's bones. And he says something in there that I just love. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You know what it's like to say to a Pharisee, you are full of lawlessness? It would be like saying to the captain of the Jets, whom I don't follow hockey, otherwise I'd say his name right now and look like I knew something, but I don't actually know who the captain of the Jets is. But it would be like saying to the captain of Jets, you're not a hockey player. You're not a hockey player. You guys are lawless to the Pharisees. They spent their whole flipping lives, pardon the expression, studying the law, trying to figure out how to obey it. And he says, you're lawless. Folks, if you have in your heart a desire not to submit, you do not know Jesus. 
Being governed by another is the essence of what it means to be Christian. It's to go back into the Garden of Eden and say, I don't want what Adam did. And it's to go into the Garden of Gethsemane and say, I do want. But nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. Be we lawless and ungoverned, we will not enter the kingdom of heaven. If you don't love submission, you don't know him. Sometimes I don't know where that comes from. But that's how strong you need to say it. If you don't want to obey him, you don't know him. Number seven. 29, this is another long one. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous. This is so cool. You build the tombs of the prophets and decorate, decorate the monuments of the righteous. So the Jeremiah's and the Ezekiel's and the Elijah's that are your heroes in the scriptures, you are now setting up monuments to honor. Saying, if we had lived... In the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Goodness. Our, our forefathers were pretty dumb. They didn't even see that Elijah was Elijah or that Jeremiah was Jeremiah. They followed all these false prophets instead. Oy, oy, oy. We wouldn't be like that. If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus, you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents. There. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel through the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Woe to you. You claim to be unlike your forefathers, but in fact, you are identical. Now, there is something embedded in this woe that will be in... Um, what's the word? In... We will not get it. <laughs> there, let's just do that. We will not get it. or It's not normal for us to understand it. We are guilty because Adam sinned. When it says in Romans, for all sinned, that's what it's saying. When Adam sinned, all sinned. So in Adam, we are all guilty. We don't get that. We want to be judged for our sin. If I am sinful, by all means, the Lord can hold me accountable. But the idea that he would hold me accountable for what, for what Adam did seems totally ridiculous. Of course, if that's totally ridiculous, then it's also totally ridiculous that he would set you free based on what Jesus did. We are righteous in the eyes of God, and we are righteous from a deep well that is welling up within us as the Spirit more and more transforms us and takes hold of our hearts and makes us new. But that righteousness has its 
fullness in our relationship to Jesus Christ. It's reversed here. So it turns out it goes both ways. Um, in essence, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you are guilty of the blood of Abel because you are one in heart with Cain. That's the way the Bible, that's the way God thinks. And by the way, it's really important, really, really important that you give your life to thinking the way God thinks because otherwise you will just think the way our culture thinks, which is guaranteed to go wrong. Finally, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Now keep in mind, Jesus has come down the hill riding on a donkey, which is an image of royalty, being um, the, the crowds are, ch are chanting, Hosanna, Son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So he is being coronated by those crowds as the Messiah who is coming. And he has entered into the temple and driven out the, the, the money changers, and he has made the lame walk and the blind see, and he has stood in authority and told the, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders, who, by the way, have the sense that the temple is their domain, that they are going to hell. Then he says this, and, he's, and, and the very next, 24 verse 1, Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came, pointed out the buildings, and then we get into him teaching his disciples on the Mount of Olives. So this moment, or this thing, whatever we call that, the coronation, is over. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have, I, would I have gathered your children together? Jesus is speaking now over thousands of years. How often would I, as the Christ? Remember that passage, I think it's in 1 Corinthians, that says that the children of Israel in the wilderness Oh my, I shouldn't do this because now I lose the details. But the, the, the rock that followed them was the Christ. Remember that passage? So Jesus was with the children of Israel in the wilderness um, as the Christ. Jesus is now speaking as that Christ. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing, repeatedly, repeatedly. Josh just told us about Amos and God saying, I'm going to do them in and Amos saying, please don't and God changing his mind. That's not a new story that happened over and over and over again in Judges and it, Jeremiah and all over the place. God seeking the nation's heart. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say the thing that the children said as he came down the mountain. Blessed is he who comes 
in the name of the Lord. And so with that, Matthew beautifully couples this two days of Jesus' life with a coronation from the crowds and the children at the first and the promise of a coronation that is yet to come when we will all say, blessed is he who comes. In the name of the Lord. Is it Maranatha? Come, Jesus, come quickly. <laughs>